You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash seanmunger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. Each time that the vault was opened, the coffins were replaced in their proper situations. That is, three on the ground, side by side, and the others laid on them. The vault was then regularly closed. The door, and a massive stone which required six or seven men to move, was cemented by masons, and though the floor was of sand, there were no marks of footsteps or water. James Edward Alexander, 1833 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 2, Barbados Vault and the Dead Tea Woman. The last episode was straight-up political history about the U.S. election of 1816. Tonight, I want to shift gears into something a little more esoteric. In the last episode, we spent a lot of time in chilly meeting rooms in New England and among the partially rebuilt ruins of Washington, D.C. In this episode, I want to take you to the Caribbean. Both our stories tonight come from Caribbean islands, but it might not be what you think at first. In our current century, we tend to think of Caribbean islands as paradise. White sand beaches, blue-green lagoons, charming little towns lorded over by bell towers of old Spanish churches, that sort of thing. But it wasn't like that in the second decade of the 19th century. In fact, the Caribbean, far from being a tropical paradise, was something like a vision of hell, especially if you were a slave. But we'll get to that. The second story is much less famous, and in my personal view, much more interesting. Neither story stands alone. They're intimately connected to the world of the British Caribbean in the 18-teens, 
and that's where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. First, I take you to the island of Barbados, specifically to a little village on its southern tip called Oystens. Here in this town stands the Christchurch Parish Church. Yes, its name is redundant, and it's still there, although the present building was uh, constructed in 1935. A church has existed here in one form or another since 1629, just two years after British settlers under Henry Powell established the colony of Barbados. In August 1812, a man named Thomas Chase, a wealthy landowner in Barbados, died. It's not recorded what of. The Chase family owned a burial vault in the yard of Christchurch Paris Church. Thomas had bought it in 1800, and it was a fashionable enough place for a rich Brit family to spend eternity. Being wealthy and important, Chase had an ostentatious coffin made of lead. On that summer evening, undoubtedly hot and sticky as it tends to be in the tropics, workmen hauled aside the great marble slab that blocked the entrance to the vault, and his pallbearers, there were eight of them because his coffin was so heavy, they brought Colonel Chase down to his final place of rest. There, the story goes, they made a disturbing discovery. There were three coffins in the vault placed there before August 1812, that of a Thomasina Goddard, buried in 1807, a Marianne Chase, uh, who was Thomas's young daughter, buried in 1808, and another daughter, Dorcas Chase, who died only a month before her father did. Rumor had it by starving herself. But the pallbearers found the coffins in disarray all over the place. This was clearly impossible. The crypt was made of stone and had one entrance that was sealed up with a slab of marble. Who could have been mucking around in there, jumbling up the coffins, and why? The pallbearers put Thomas where he was supposed to be, undoubtedly happy to be relieved of their load of carrying a lead coffin, and they replaced the others in their places. They sealed up the tomb and went about their business. Four years later, in September 1816, another member of the family, Samuel Brewster Ames, died. Samuel was a baby. Infant mortality was pretty frightful in 1816, even among the rich. When they opened the Chase vault, the coffins were again found in total disarray. Thomas Chase was in the weirdest position of all, leaning against the wall, head facing downward. Not easy to get a lead coffin, which takes eight guys to lift, into that position. What else could they do but clean everything up, put it back in its place, and hope that that was the end of it? That's what they did. Uh, not sure exactly who they were, though one of them appears to have been Reverend Thomas Orderson, who was the rector of Christ Church. Presumably there was a member of the Chase family present, too. Two months later, November 1816, another member of the Brewster Chase family who's died, Samuel Brewster, an adult, is buried in the vault. The circumstances of his death are important, but I'll get there. They open the vault again. Same thing. Coffins upended, jumbled, thrown around. The coffin of Thomasina Goddard, which was made of planks, not lead, had come apart. Three times now this had happened. The attendants laid Brewster to rest. They stacked the others back in their places. This, uh, this wasn't a very big vault, so they had to be stacked on top of each other. Uh, so they put everybody back in their places and left. Chase vault was undisturbed for three years. In 1819, a member of the family, Thomasina Clark, died. When they tried to open the vault, the big marble door wouldn't give. Eventually, the workers realized the huge lead coffin of Thomas Chase was jammed up against the door. It took some doing to get the slab open. The whole place was in shambles yet again. 
By now, much of the island was talking about the occurrence, and the commotion attracted the attention of Lord Cumbermere, the governor of Barbados. His given name was Stapleton Cotton. He was the first Viscount Combermere, a war hero from the Napoleonic Wars, later to become Constable of the Tower, that being the Tower of London. Lord Cumbermere, according to the story, wanted answers. He ordered a search of the vault to try to explain the phenomenon. The searchers found no secret entrance, no way into the tomb other than the front door, and no way floodwater could get in. The place was solid. This time, Combermere ordered sand sprinkled on the floor to show evidence of footprints or disturbance, and the marble slab should be sealed with cement, which he reportedly imprinted with his official governor's seal. He and the rector also evidently decided they would reopen the tomb in a few months' time just to see if everything was all right. Well, of course, you know it wasn't. In April 1820, the governor, Reverend Orderson, and two masons and five other people went to the chase crypt and saw the cement and the seal was undisturbed. They chipped it away and hauled open the marble slab. One of the kids' coffins was reportedly laying on the steps, and Thomas Chase's big lead coffin was upside down. The only one the Vandals hadn't touched was Mrs. Goddard's plank coffin, which was sort of hastily wired back together after one of the previous disturbances. The sand on the floor showed no footprints or disturbances of any kind. The Chase family wisely decided to cut their losses. They moved their various kin out of the vault and buried them elsewhere. Reportedly, the vault was left open and remains that way, empty, to this very day. Thus, we're left with a truly insoluble mystery. Heavy lead coffins are moved around by some invisible force that can pass through walls and not leave its marks in sand. You can see why this story attracted the attention of students of the paranormal. This is how the Barbados vault story is usually presented. One of the possible explanations, if you can call it that, is some sort of voodoo magic. Well, naturally. You've got strange paranormal goings-on in a cemetery on a Caribbean island, so why not think of voodoo? Some accounts of the story, more modern ones, stress that Thomas Chase was known as a particularly cruel slave master. The jumbled coffins could be some kind of curse placed on his family by aggrieved slaves, to make sure they would never rest in peace. Barbados in 1812 undoubtedly was a slave society, and the tensions built up on that little island, especially between its white and black inhabitants, were pretty grim. To understand what Barbados was like in the second decade, you have to understand a little bit about British colonialism at that time. From the standpoint of the British crown, colonies were about one thing, profit. They were businesses. And as Brits settled on the east coast of North America, and particularly in the Caribbean, they learned quickly that the most lucrative colonies weren't up there in Plymouth or Pennsylvania or Jamestown, but down on those islands, Jamaica, St. Kitts, Nevis, and Barbados. Why were the West Indies so profitable? Because the British drank a lot of tea. Seriously, that's why. Tea. The Brits incidentally got their tea from India, their colony on the other side of the world, and the tea was fabulously lucrative. But the sugar that went in the tea came from the West Indies, and that was a big business too. Think about that for a minute. A huge global economy knitted together with sailing ships, commanding the fates of millions of laborers, nearly all of them people of color, revolving around what rich Brits like to drink at breakfast. The Brits got into the sugar business in the mid-17th century. 
mainly because of a war that prevented Brazil, a Portuguese colony that was previously the main source of sugar, from trading with the European market. Enter the West Indies. Big market opportunity. Planters in the New World can scoop up the sugar market if they can get a lot of product back to Europe, which means they need a lot of labor. Prior to this time, most of the labor on Barbados, which as I said was founded as a British colony in 1627, was white. That is to say, indentured servants. But when the sugar trade started to take off, the economics changed. Pretty soon, slaves were much cheaper, at least in the large numbers you needed to man sugarcane plantations. The economy of Barbados and a lot of British and French held islands in the Caribbean stood literally on the sweaty, whip-marked backs of African and some American Indian slaves. Slavery in the West Indies was brutal. Because sugar production was so labor-intensive and you needed armies of slaves to make a lot of money in the sugar business, that meant keeping very tight control. Barbados in the 18th century was pretty much a giant concentration camp of slave quarters policed by garrisons of white militia and British redcoat troops, studded here and there with beautiful mansions where rich white people sat around in powdered wigs and frilly skirts, living high on the hog. Slaves, on the other hand, could be brutally tortured for stepping out of line. Punishments for slaves included branding, whipping, getting their nostrils slit, yes, just like Jack Nicholson in the movie Chinatown, or even by having their limbs chopped off. A law passed in Barbados specified that slave quarters had to be searched for contraband every week. So imagine your pretty white sand beach Caribbean paradise, except filled with troops, patrolled by British warships, with curfews and arbitrary searches, and the countryside echoing with the jangling of chains of thousands of human beings being forced to do brutal sun-up-to-sundown labor in sugarcane fields. Oh, and we're in a tropical environment, so add to that malaria, cholera, dysentery, yellow fever, hordes of rats and roaches, and your not-so-occasional case of heat stroke. Even life for white people on this island wasn't so good. People in the 18th century didn't bathe. They stank. They had bad skin and flea bites. Even rich people were often in debt to banks or suppliers back in England. Their kids died young. As we see in the Chase Vault story, a family had to bury people quite a lot. Three of the occupants of the Chase Vault were babies or young children. And not all white people were rich. There was a large underclass of poor whites in Barbados, many of them unemployed. There was no social safety net in 1800. Many of them lived in shacks in the hilly forests of the island. Crime and drunkenness were rampant. I told you it wasn't much of a paradise. This is not the Barbados you see in cruise ship brochures. Just before the second decade, two things happened to make the situation of slavery in Barbados even more explosive. In 1791, the French West Indies colony of Saint-Domingue, today we call it Haiti, rose in revolt. This was the only successful slave revolt in the history of the New World, at least one that resulted in the establishment of self-rule by an African-American majority. The slave revolution kicked France out of Haiti and scared the bejesus out of slave owners everywhere else in the Americas, but especially on other West Indies islands. The other thing that happened was William Wilberforce. He was an anti-slavery crusader back in Britain, one of the original abolitionists, and the goal of Wilberforce and his friends was to eradicate slavery in the British Empire. 
Ultimately, he was successful. Slavery was outlawed in the 1830s, shortly after his death. But the crusade proceeded in stages. One important stage was the abolition of African slave trade. In 1807, the British Parliament outlawed foreign slave trade. Slavery was still legal, but it meant that the supply of slaves now had to be self-regenerating. This wasn't a problem for Barbadian slave owners, who had become largely independent of slave traders prior to 1807. But naturally, this step toward abolition was big news among the slaves themselves. They knew who William Wilberforce was, and they appreciated that slavery was what you might call a wedge issue in the British Empire. Slaves' own resistance and agitation for freedom and reform ramped up. Predictably, slave owners in Barbados blamed Wilberforce and the abolitionists for stirring up their slaves and igniting false hopes of freedom. This is the world in which the Chase family lived, and in 1812 started dying out of, only to have their bodies thrown around, in the words of one writer on the subject, like dice in a wooden cup. By 1812, when reportedly brutal slave owner Thomas Chase died, you remember the disturbances began after his burial, white Barbadians were even more terrified of their slaves than ever before, and observers had noticed for the past five years that the Barbados slaves seemed unusually restive. In early 1816, Barbados's House of Assembly considered a bill providing for a general census of slaves. That wasn't done, but evidently the slaves feared there would be new measures taken against them. A man called Busa, who was born in Africa, started quietly plotting a rebellion. Busa was the head ranger at Bailey's Plantation in the parish of St. Philip, the next one over from the parish where the Chase Vault was located. Busa had a chief lieutenant, a slave, a Creole, meaning native-born to Barbados, named Jackie, head driver at the Simmons Plantation, was Busa's lieutenant, and he held secret meetings at the plantation to plan the revolt. As they passed messages to literate slaves on other plantations, eventually free people of color, of which there were many on Barbados, began to assist the plotters, especially with propaganda and communications. On Sunday, April 14, 1816, which was Easter, Busa and his companions struck. Slaves rose up on plantations in about half the parishes on Barbados and started burning sugarcane fields. They also began murdering white men. There was heavy fighting between armed slaves and local militia. Eventually, British regular troops joined in, including black slave soldiers of the 1st West India Regiment. They put down the rebellion after three days. Busa himself was killed in one of these battles. Many of the dead among the slaves and free people of color weren't killed in battle, but simply executed, without process, on the assumption that they were actively employed in the rebellion. About 50 whites were killed and at least 144 blacks executed under martial law. One of the white men killed in Busa's rebellion was none other than Samuel Brewster, a member of the Chase Brewster family whose coffin was buried in the infamous vault. He may have been, I'm not sure, but he may have been the private Brewster, who's recorded as the only white militiaman killed in the battle. However, notice a curious thing. I said that the rebellion occurred in April 1816. Samuel Brewster, whose interment was the occasion for the discovery of another episode of Disarray in the Vault, the third if you were counting, uh, he's said, at least in the account I read, to have been buried in November 1816, 
seven weeks after the interment of the baby Samuel Brewster Ames in September. The account I read stated that Brewster, the adult Brewster killed in the slave rebellion, had been buried elsewhere in the meantime and only brought back to the family's crypt after several months had passed. That's certainly possible, but it is a bit odd. As it turns out, the historical accuracy, or historicity, to use a professional term, of the Chase Vault story is open to serious question. Succession of deaths, Thomas Chase, 1812, Baby Brewster and Adult Brewster, 1816, Thomasina Clark, 1819, that's apparently verified by records of the Christchurch Parish Church. What we don't know, however, what isn't evident from the records, is whether they were in fact buried in this vault. There's no evidence that they were. That's what Joe Nickel, noted skeptic and paranormal investigator, concluded when he looked into the Barbados vault story in 1982. The earliest surviving report of the strange moving coffins comes from a book published in 1833 by James Alexander called The Transatlantic Sketches. I read a quote from that book at the beginning of this episode. It is possible that the story was contemporary to the 18-teens or 20s, possibly circulated by Thomas Orderson, rector of St. Parish Church at the time, but we don't know for sure. The records have been lost. Joe Nickel noted similarities between the Barbados vault story and various other very similar tales from other places. Alexander himself brings up one of these similar stories, from Staunton, Suffolk in England, apparently from 1815. This story has the exact same details as the Barbados vault tale. The story, and various other stories, began to appear in various books published in the 19th century. It's impossible to tell where it originated. There are many slightly different versions. In other words, it appears to be an urban legend. Multiple variations, inconsistent details, closely resembles other stories of questionable origin, and no hard and fast documentary evidence to prove that it happened. The succession of deaths, Chase, Baby Brewster, Adult Brewster, Clark, may have been taken more or less accurately from the Christchurch Parish Church records and grafted onto an existing legend to give it some authenticity. The involvement of Lord Cumbermere also seems suspicious to me. In one version, he's actively participating in the 1819 burial and the reopening of the tomb in 1820. In another, he merely hears about the phenomenon and inquires about it. Stapleton Cotton, Lord Cumbermere, did leave papers behind, and they're in various British archives. But so far as I know, no one has uncovered in them any first-hand account of this remarkable event from him. You'd think he'd have written about it if he was there. So, unfortunately, before we can even get to the question of whether this was voodoo or poltergeists or earth tremors that did this, we're already faced with serious doubts as to whether it happened at all. I think it's fair to say that it did not happen. In any event, if you're looking for slam-dunk proof that the paranormal exists, the Barbados vault case probably isn't a very good candidate to pin your hopes on. If you like unsolved mysteries and you're disappointed that the moving coffins in the Barbados vault didn't pan out, have no fear. It just so happens I have a real unsolved mystery, also from the Caribbean, about this same time, 
which is documented, and which we can be reasonably sure really did happen. It's much less well-known, but personally I find it much more interesting. The Dead Tea Woman of Nevis. The story comes from the island of Nevis, another British West Indies colony, located about 340 miles northwest of Barbados. It's now part of the independent country of St. Kitts and Nevis, and it happened in 1809. Just a quick word about the subject of this podcast. It's called Second Decade, and I I mean by that principally the decade of the 18-teens. But history doesn't follow a calendar. Something that happened in 1809 or 1821 or something like that seems totally fair game. And in fact, there's a lot of good reasons to count 1809 as being part of the long second decade. But we'll get to that in a later show. In the winter of 1809, a British lawyer on the island of Nevis, John Colquhoun Mills, sent a letter to William Davis Shipley, the dean of St. Osoph Cathedral in Wales, describing a curious discovery that had happened on the island. Here are the original words of that letter. 27th of February, 1809. Dear Sir, I beg to mention the following circumstances and leave to your better judgment the propriety of making the same public. About a fortnight ago, the overseer on the campus estate discovered a chest floating in the wash of the sea, and with the assistance of several Negroes, he had it brought on shore. On opening it, it was found to contain a female corpse wrapped in several folds of sheer cloth, and a quantity of tea was spread between each fold. The box or coffin was also filled up with tea, so the quantity was supposed of 200 weight. The body was in a tolerable state of preservation, and had the appearance of being that of a person about 30 years of age, rather corpulent, with a remarkable handsome hand, a good set of teeth, and long dark hair. The mouth had been filled with tea, and some moisture having occasioned the teeth to swell, left the teeth exposed. On touching them, one fell in. The box was better than six feet long, and made remarkably strong, having 16 iron clamps. The whole of it was covered with cloth, which had burgundy pitch rubbed over it, and it was perfectly watertight. It must have been in the sea a very long time, as it had a number of barnacles upon it. The wood was supposed to what is called in the East Indies, teak wood. Around the middle of the box was a tarred rope, which had the appearance of having suspended it, or been a lashing to it. Should the publishing this account be the cause of making it known to relatives of the deceased, it may prove grateful to their feelings to know the body was decently interred on this island and every attention paid to it. I remain, dear sir, yours very truly, John Colquhoun Mills. The letter is undeniably genuine. It was published in the Naval Chronicle of 1809, essentially the official journal of the Royal Navy. So, unlike the story of the Chase Vault, it does have a verifiable historical pedigree. But who was this dead woman who washed up in a box full of tea on a Caribbean beach in the winter of 1809? I tried to research this incident and could find nothing more than this. Mills says that they buried her on Nevis, but apparently she was never identified. If there was any resolution to this story, it hasn't survived into the historical record. So let's look a little bit at the history of Nevis and what it was like in the second decade. If you think the history of Barbados is dark, Nevis takes that and turns it up to 11. This island has such a tangled and complex history, I got a headache just from reading a basic summary of it. Nevis is one of the oldest European colonies in the Americas. 
It was first sighted by Europeans in 1493 on Columbus's second voyage. He called it Nuestra Señora de las Nieves, or Our Lady of the Snows, relating to a crown of clouds that usually hovers around the peak of the volcano on this island. The English and French always seemed to be fighting, or at least competing, over Nevis and the nearby island with which it became associated, uh, St. Kitts. The original inhabitants of the island predictably got shafted, as they did everywhere in the Americas. There's an old story of a terrible genocide of Carib Indians that occurred on St. Kitts in 1626, and after that the island of Nevis was partitioned between the British and French. The Spanish often tried to raid Nevis with ships, so eventually the island became sort of a fortress. Over the 17th and 18th centuries, a series of disasters, wars between the European powers, earthquakes, tsunamis, continually raked this little island. The first cash crop on Nevis was tobacco. But in the mid-17th century, Virginia, and especially what they called the Tidewater region, began dominating the tobacco market. Tidewater tobacco planters in Virginia eventually became the elite that gave us George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Monroe, who we talked about in the last episode. In the 1640s, to replace losses from tobacco, British settlers on Nevis started growing, guess what, sugarcane. As you should know from the example of Barbados, where you have large-scale sugar cultivation, you're eventually going to have to have large-scale slavery. It was no less brutal and inhuman on Nevis than it was anywhere else in the West Indies, perhaps even more so, because Nevis's economy was very heavily concentrated on sugar production. By the end of the 18th century, Nevis was the jewel in the crown, the richest and most profitable colony per capita in the entire British Empire. The relative wealth of the West Indies colonies is an important factor to explain why places like Nevis did not join the American Revolution. A lot of the issues that caused the Revolution, the Taxation, Stamp Act, that sort of thing, those were rooted to a desire by the British Crown to have the American colonies pay for their own defense, especially after the very expensive Seven Years' War, we call it the French and Indian War where Britain was forced to send her expensive army to North America to protect it from the French. Virginia, Massachusetts, South Carolina, they just weren't that profitable. They couldn't pull their weight. The West Indies colonies, though, could. Not only were they rich, and there was no need for special taxes like the ones that angered the American colonists, but they were much more profitable, and thus the British were much more likely to spend resources to defend them. Those red coats cost a lot of money, you know. Nevis, however, does have a connection to the American Revolution. Alexander Hamilton, who is the founding father currently in vogue thanks to the Broadway musical, was born in Charlestown, the capital of Nevis, in 1755. He left the West Indies for the mainland in the early 1770s, just before the Revolution. Of course, he was dead by the time the second decade began. So, let's get back to the dead tea woman. What on earth was going on here? We have no idea who the woman was, but we can make some educated guesses about her based on the evidence in the letter. The first thing that jumps out at me was the description of her body, corpulent. She was fat. Obesity is a fascinating subject in history, and one that's fairly recently been explored, but one can make an assumption that she was fairly well-to-do. In the early 19th century, obesity was often a sign of prosperity, more often in men than in women, however. The description of the chest she was floating in is interesting, too. 
it sounds like it was built to float. 16 iron clamps, watertight, covered in cloth, covered in pitch. Somebody wanted to make sure this woman's body didn't sink to the bottom. The chest was made of teak, which is the kind of wood they use on sailing ships. Burgundy pitch is also known as gallipote, which is a form of turpentine. My guess, and it's nothing more than a guess, is that the chest was constructed by a ship's carpenter, which meant the woman could have died at sea. According to Mills, the chest was filled with tea. Tea leaves are mildly acidic, and while the practice doesn't seem to have been widespread, you could theoretically embalm someone in tea. But tea was also extremely valuable and expensive. You'd need a lot of it to fill in a whole coffin around a body, even a portly one. So this indicates to me also a nautical origin. Where else would you get that much tea, except perhaps on a cargo ship carrying it? So perhaps this woman died aboard a ship, or she died elsewhere and was transported aboard a ship. Most traditional burials at sea aren't intended for the deceased to float. Indeed, at least in the British Navy, my understanding was that if you died at sea, you'd be sewn into a canvas bag with lead weights in it, then dumped overboard from a reusable coffin. If you've ever seen any one of those uh, Napoleonic naval warfare movies, uh, Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, Damn the Defiant, Horatio Hornblower, that sort of thing, you've probably seen this reenacted. Master and Commander includes the detail of putting the last embroidery stitch through the deceased's nose, apparently to be sure that they're really dead. Anyway, the point is, you don't build a coffin and set it afloat. When you bury someone at sea, you want them to sink, unless you're a Viking, in which case you set them on fire before you set them adrift. So was the woman being transported on a ship, perhaps, and the ship was lost overboard, or perhaps the ship sank? The chest would have floated along with a lot of other flotsam, If it happened a long time ago, you remember Mills stated that the chest had accumulated a lot of barnacles. The various bits of flotsam from the wreck would have dispersed far and wide across the ocean, floating in the currents. I've done a kind of rudimentary study of ocean flotsam, not scientific by any means, but I researched the issue for a series of blogs I wrote in 2015. Uh, The series was called Flotsam and Jetsam, also the name of a classic heavy metal band. I found out that buoyant material can remain floating in the ocean for decades, even centuries. There's a famous example from our own time. In 1992, a container filled with toys manufactured in Hong Kong slid off the deck of a cargo ship in a storm and broke open. Some of the toys in the container were a brand of rubber ducks called Friendly Floaties, which, unlike most other rubber ducks, don't have holes in them, which means they float forever. Scientists found out about this accident and started tracking the friendly floaties all across the Pacific as a means to study ocean currents. The friendly floaties are still out there, 25 years later, and one or two will still occasionally wash up on beaches around the Pacific. Bottom line for our story, the dead tea woman could have been bobbing around out there in the Caribbean for a long time, years perhaps. For whatever reason, she wound up in the water, whether a deliberate burial at sea or some kind of accident. She might have drifted hundreds of miles to wind up on Nevis. The Gulf Stream originates off the west coast of Africa. The part of it that sweeps westward across the Atlantic into the Caribbean Sea is called the North Equatorial Current. So it's at least possible that the dead tea woman might have gone overboard a long way from Nevis and somehow found her way to that beach on that day an epic ocean voyage of which we know nothing.
Mills reported that she was buried decently on Nevis, presumably with good Christian services. While he doesn't report where she was buried, it's at least possible that wherever it is, she's still there. You could today, in 2016, walk through some old grassy churchyard on the island of Nevis, perhaps within sight of those gently crashing blue-green waves, and you might walk right over her grave. Nevis is different now. There are no more slaves, thank God. Slavery was abolished in the British Empire in the 1830s, and the waters that were once patrolled by British frigates from Portsmouth are now crisscrossed by cruise ships from Miami. But the dead tea woman may still be there, somewhere, unseen and unsolved. Just speaking for myself, I vastly prefer this kind of historical mystery, one where we know it really happened, to some apocryphal nonsense about moving coffins. The dead tea woman was real. She was somebody's daughter, maybe somebody's wife, somebody's mother. She had a real life in the real world. And somehow, she ended up in a box stuffed with tea, and as the subject of a podcast more than 200 years later. That's today's story from the second decade. Join me again for another story from this remarkable time in history, two centuries ago. If you like this podcast, please share it. Tell somebody about it. Mention it on your social media, your Facebook, your Twitter, YouTube, whatever is your thing. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Munger. There's an underscore there. Uh, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include A History of Barbados from Amerindian Settlement to Nation State by Hilary Beckles, Cambridge University Press 1990, The Encyclopedia of Unsolved Mysteries by Colin Wilson and Damon Wilson, Zachary Quintner Books 1987, Transatlantic Sketches by Captain James E. Alexander, published by Key and Biddle, Philadelphia, 1833, and The Naval Chronicle for 1809, published by Joyce Gold of London, 1810. Guest voice, Rob Eggleston as John Colquhoun Mills. Big thanks to Rob and his Midlands, England voice. I think it's Midlands, I don't know. Our music is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.